final installment of this series, In the Mess. Uh, I just want to like let everybody know a celebration that we had last weekend after our second morning worship experience. We had a young man come forward and give his life to Christ. Let's celebrate that. That's awesome. Uh, if you're new to Encounter, what you have to know is bringing people far from God to new life in Christ, our value, is one of the most exciting things that we get to celebrate around here. And again, I just want to remind you that we have that baptism worship uh, experience coming up in the fall. Uh, if you want to show the world that you've risen with Christ, EncounterChurch.org slash baptism. Another value that we have is that we experience God daily, not just us as, a, as adults or grown-ups uh, here in the auditorium, but kids, everybody worshiping, everybody growing their faith in church, especially the kids. For the first time ever, we're kicking off a kids' summer reading program. Uh, what this is is for kids ages pre-K to fifth grade to continue to experience God daily. Grab one of these packets to learn how to uh, partner with your kids to continue their faith growth by checking it out at the starting point desk at the back of church. Next weekend, we have a series that's, uh, that we're, we're starting. You're not going to want to miss it. It's, it's called Hidden Miracles. You see, long before Jesus turned water into wine and then long after he was raised again from the dead, there were these miracles that we don't often talk about. And then the teaching of Jesus around those miracles, well, we're still talking about it today. You're not going to want to miss the, the miracles we don't often talk about, the, the hidden miracles. All right, today we're going back into the mess where God is. God doesn't avoid the mess. He doesn't step around the mess. He's found in the mess. What we're going to do this morning is to take a look at how faith can sometimes be messy. That, that faith sometimes isn't a clear-cut answer. That that line between faith and doubt is a little murky at times. And, and so what I want us to do, I guess, what would be helpful for you in the weeks and months to come is to ask this simple question to yourself. Not going to have you write it down. Not going to have you share you with anybody, but if you want to talk about it on the way home, that would be great with whoever you came here with. But this question of, if I really trusted God, I'd what? Like, what would it be? What would it look like for you to not just trust God, but, but, to, but to really trust God? If I really trusted God, what I would do with my money is, if I really trusted God, what I would do with my career would be, if I really trusted God, I'd hand over this, this, this messy living situation over to him. And if I really put my hope and my trust and my faith in God, what I would do with my body is, or what I would do with my forgiveness is, or what I would do with my anger is, if I really, really trusted God, what would you do? We're going to hear a story about what somebody does with this messy kind of faith about really trusting in God, what it cost him and what he saw and didn't see, which is probably more significant by the end of the story. Um, let's go ahead and turn to the story. It comes from Genesis chapter 46 and 47. We're going to be moving through a couple chapters, kind of just some selections. There's, by, by the way, Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can pull those out. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, go ahead and take it. We give them away all the time, and we love that. But the words are going to be on the screen behind me. What we're doing in this series, for those of you who are new, is we're looking through the life of Jacob, which is a really, really messy story. And we're seeing how he had a messy family, messy plans, um, messy past, and now this morning, a, a real messy kind of faith. And, and we're going to drop in on Jacob in the story. It's a final installment. So he's old. 
I mean, like, he, like, he's really old. He's 130 years old, which, friends, I just love. And I just, it's kind of a deviation from the point of the sermon this morning, but I have to say it anyway, is that God drops in on this guy and says, hey, it's time for you to move. Move internationally. Move from Canaan, this promised land, over to Egypt. I want you to move to a new country, a new people, a new place at 130 years old. And just like how cool that is that we come here and serve and we come here and worship a God who breaks in on somebody when they've said, I've made too many mistakes, I've grown too old, I'm walking with a limp for the last 33 years, and God says, I'm not finished with you yet. I love that we serve a God like that. No matter what's in your past, no matter what mistakes you made, he says, you're not done till I say you're done. And Jacob is not done. Let's go to the story. This one comes to us, starting off in verse 1, and it starts this way. So Israel, remember, that's his new name. Heard about that last week. You can stream it. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, pause. When he reached Beersheba, you see, see, this is important to the story because Jacob is leaving Canaan. He's leaving the promised land, and he's, and he's heading to Egypt, and he's having some second thoughts which is somewhat understandable because Canaan has been known by another name as the promised land. Canaan is the land of blessing. Canaan is this huge area that God promised to his grandpa, Abraham, and re-upped that promise to his dad, Isaac, and then re-upped it again to him, Jacob. And right now he thinks maybe God is asking him to move to Egypt, away from the land, and he's 130 years old, so he's got some reservations about a move away from blessing to this new place. And so on his way out, he stops in Beersheba, which is this border town kind of place. Just when he's leaving the land of blessing, he pauses right on the edge of the territory of the land and just camps out there for the night. This is, like, this is like you and I, okay, if, if you love Michigan as much as I do and you leave this great state of Michigan, you camp out in New Buffalo overnight. And just before you leave the blessed land shaped like a hand, you just have to make sure that God wants you to actually truly leave. And so he does. He camps out right there just before entering Michigan City. You've been, you've done that drive on the way to Chicago. And he says, God, are you sure are you sure about Egypt? Now, why is that so important? Is because I think it highlights just the messiness of the situation and the messiness of the faith that God is asking him to have. Because he wants to stop and make sure that he, he heard God right. God, did you actually honestly tell me to leave the land of blessing and to go to this uncertain future of Egypt? I think it's a valuable question to ask because, because what that means is he's leaving, he's leaving the good life. He's leaving what feels like the promises of God. He's leaving the shelter of God, the blessing of God for an uncertain place. And, and I think to an extent, we can all kind of, we can all get that because, because some of us have that same Beersheba New Buffalo kind of tension that before we leave, we want to like do a spiritual gut check kind of thing because we have to ask ourselves, we have to answer this question, wait, 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 am I following God 
because of the blessings of God or because of the heart of God? Am I following after him because I think that following after him is going to get me the things that I want? Or am I following after him because he's God and the heart of God is good enough for me? See, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, it's a weird one, which, you know, that's me. You'll get to know me a little. John chapter 6, Jesus, Jesus is speaking to these crowds and the story takes place right after he walked on water, which is impressive. And then it takes place right after he feeds 5,000 people with a kid's Lunchable. Also impressive. But one of the things that we don't talk about, we get, we get caught up in like, wow, that was an incredible miracle, Jesus. One of the things that we don't often talk about is how that crowd, 5,000, they only counted men. I know, it's terrible. But, but it was probably whole, all the people, women, children included, something like 10, 12,000 people. When we talk about the miracle, we don't often also talk about how much social capital that built up for Jesus. 10 to 12,000 people just saw him pull off an incredible miracle and their bellies were full as the tangible evidence of it. I would argue that the vast majority of the crowd that day was saying, I don't know what message you have, but I'm here for it anyway. I mean, I'm going to follow you anyway because of what you just did. And they did. Thousands of people were following Jesus after that moment. John, he calls them disciples, which just means followers of Jesus. But even outside of his day ones, let's call them, his original guys, his 12, there was also these thousands of disciples that were following after Jesus. And just as he gets them all in, Right? And the disciples, the day ones, are over here going, finally, it's happening. Right, right? Like, like they're just getting this taste of worldly success. And Jesus, too, I think, is, is getting his first taste of worldly success. And everybody is, is so excited. It's, it's palpable. It's in the air. You can, you can feel it. And then he gets people like this. He gets everybody around him. And, you know, and maybe he's speaking on a, on a mountainside with some good acoustics. He, thousands of people are listening in. You know what he tells them? Thousands of people. This is his breakout moment. And he goes, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Yeah, it was weird. It was weird even by ancient standards. Nobody knew what in the world he was talking about. Not even the disciples. And we know that because they left. I mean, they just took off, just kind of walked away. Thousands of them left that day. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, how about you guys? Day ones, are you too going to leave? And one of them looks back at Jesus and says something so profound. He says, Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In a sense, the disciple looked back at Jesus and said, don't you know, we're not here for the success. We're not here for the blessing. We're here for you, Jesus. How does that saying go? We don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And they had only Jesus. I think 
that following Jesus is the best way for you to live your life. I'm not gonna say that it's the easiest way for you to live your life, but I think God made you. I think Jesus knows you and he knows what's best for you. And so I think that generally speaking, following after Jesus will lead to more intimate relationships, deeper friendships, better fellowship and community. I think that following Jesus will lead you into a more, becoming a more generous person. I think that there are all kinds of just purely worldly blessings that are wrapped up with following Jesus. And I think it's incredible easy to like the crowd that day, like Jacob is, is wondering that day, to get trapped up into following and pursuing the blessings of God instead of the heart of God. And so what Jacob is doing in this moment, this gut check moment in Beersheba, is saying, God, are you sure you want me to leave the blessings behind because, because I was still holding on? Are you sure that you want to leave, for me to leave the past blessings behind and head into this uncertain future? And we read what God says next, that God shows up in the moment. In verse two, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, Beersheba, and God spoke to Israel, Jacob, in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. A line that stretches all the way from Abraham to the prophet Isaiah a long time later. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you into a great nation there. God says, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph, remember Joseph, second to youngest kid, he thought he was dead. Joseph is alive, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. God meets them in that borderland area and says, I need you, Jacob, to let go of the past and embrace this uncertain future. And Jacob says, okay. Jacob lets go of the past blessings to pursue this uncertain future because I think what he knows is that he doesn't need to know exactly what the future holds because he knows the one who holds the future. And he pursues God in that place and God shows up to him, and he's not gonna stop showing up. The thing I loved about that line, the thing I love is how God accommodates him in his, in his moment of weakness. God accommodates him in this moment of doubt, and I think God is gonna accommodate you in your moment of weakness and doubt as well. God shows up, and he's got like this, this four-step process. Step one of verse three is, I'm God, don't forget it. Don't forget who I am and don't forget just what I am capable of. Don't forget I am God. Step two, and also don't be afraid. If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? Don't be afraid. And then he names it. I, I think even though up to this moment, Jacob hadn't quite named his anxiety over leaving the past blessing for an uncertain future, leaving the blessing for the heart of God, even though he hadn't named it explicitly, God names it. He says, don't be afraid to what? To go down to Egypt. And God just flat out names it. And then he gives him a promise. He says, I will never leave you. Have you considered that when you're in that borderland moment, of asking yourself if you trust God. No, no, if you really trust God, 
that he accommodates you in that moment and says, don't forget who I am and what I'm capable of. What could you possibly be afraid of, child? Don't be afraid to, and God knows that thing. Even if you haven't audibly said it in the past, God knows it and names it and says, I am with you. Yes, even there. I will never leave you, never forsake you. It's time to move, child, move. And he does. Now, I think if it's me, I move but I leave something behind. I think if it's me, honestly, and maybe a few people in the room here today who trust God, but it's messy, we move, but we also hedge and leave something behind, something to come back to. God wants no hedging. He wants them to go all in. And so this is, this is what happens in verse 26. Now, all those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, this is where it gets messy, they numbered 66 persons, by the way, with the sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, not born yet, but they will, because he didn't get to Egypt, but they will be born in Egypt with the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Um, around here, when we start adding stuff up, by the way, we skipped a whole section where it just like lists off all the names and we kind of just went to the point. You can check it out later. But uh, around here, when we get to like the fuzzy numbers like this, um, we call that pastor math, right? <laughs> when you're like, wait a second, I got 66, not counting some of these other ones, and they got two sons who hadn't been born yet. So that's 68. Yeah, there were 70 in all. And they're like, in other words, as a pastor, almost 1,000. <laughs> pastor math. Okay. Um, it doesn't add up. Like, what? Uh, you got 68 here. Now, couple ways to rectify this, um, but what we don't wanna miss is the greater point that Jacob is making, that the storyteller is making for you and I today. I think all you have to do is to add in also the sons, what he probably does here, according to people far smarter than I am, is add in the two sons that were lost, that died back in Canaan, uh, Onan and Ur, and then you have 68, 69, 70, you've got them all. But, but the, the point isn't trying to figure out the math and add it all up. The point is in the number 70. Because in the story of Genesis, in fact, throughout the Bible, they had this cultural norm of using seven as a stand-in of saying everything, all of it, every last bit, all in, 100%. In fact, we do the same thing when we say things like, well, keep it 100. And you're like, 100 what? It doesn't matter, but I will text you the emoji for 100. I don't need to know what that is. I understand what you're talking about. You're like, all of it, it's good, 100%, something like that. It's good. The same thing they did with the number 70 there. In other words, Jacob packs up his whole family, 70 of them in all, and the storyteller just wants to tell us, this guy isn't hedging. This guy is all in. This guy is no longer holding on to the blessings of God. He is 100% pursuing the heart of God all in, 70 of them. And when he gets there, chapter 47, verse 7, Joseph, <laughs> Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh in Egypt, the head guy, Pharaoh. Unbelievable. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, he goes, how old are you? which you can do if you're Pharaoh. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else. But he, but he says, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, 
the years of my pilgrimage are 130. And then he says this, he goes, my years have been few and difficult. Now, I don't, I don't see 130 years old, I don't see that as having few years. Except for like we finish it out and we go, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And he's right. Uh, comparison, Isaac lived till he was 180. It was dad. His granddad, Abraham, lived to 175. He's sort of on the twilight tail end of, the, of, of his life at 130. And by comparison, I guess you could say he's kind of young. At 130, he's only beginning to dip into Social Security. He should have a long time left. But he goes, compared to them, my years have been few. And then he adds, and difficult. And for those of you who have been following this series so far, you know how difficult those years have been. I would argue, I would venture that this, this guy squeezed enough hurt and enough pain, enough suffering into his 130 years than most of us are going to squeeze into several lifetimes. Much of the hurt and pain and difficulty he caused himself. He was the one who decided to rob his twin brother blind. He was the one who decided to lie and deceive his father on his deathbed. That was on him. The fact that he had to run away from home because his brother wanted to kill him was his fault. He was the one who ripped off his uncle. We heard about the, the sheep mixing story before. That's on him. He was the one who got himself blackout, fall down drunk, and ended up marrying the wrong woman. That was on him. But then there are circumstances just beyond his control that just added to the hard life. A global famine, having to watch his, his family begin the first stages of starvation and to contemplate an international move at 130 years old. That wasn't his fault. He, he loved his son Joseph so much. And, and as, a, as a dad, I, I can't imagine saying something as audacious like, like he loved his son Joseph too much, but he loved him to the point that his older 10 brothers wanted him dead and ended up, ended up selling him, settling for selling him into, into slavery to these traders headed to Egypt, bringing back one of his robes covered in blood and saying a wild animal must have eaten him and just having to live with the pain that his 17-year-old kid was mauled and eaten to death. It was difficult to live with that. And then to find out years and years later that, that his son wasn't actually dead. No, no, his son wasn't dead at all. In fact, all that happened was that his other sons, his other 10 sons, just sold his brother into slavery. He lived a difficult life. And it's in this season that I think he's beginning to wonder whether or not God left him. As, as he's kind of contemplating his life and the hardships that were involved with it, I think he was starting to, to wonder if maybe at some point he left God or maybe God left him or I guess it doesn't really matter anymore because God's presence is far from him. And I can just kind of hear the echoes of the past promise. I will go down with you into that place. 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the mistake that, that, that he makes is one that I think all of us make from time to time, is that he equates the place with the presence. He, he equates the place of God, Canaan, the land of promise, uh, with the presence of God. Now that he left that place and he's in some new place in Egypt, God isn't here. His presence ends at the border in Beersheba. Now, I just think that's kind of relevant to share with you because we might not think about God's presence uniquely dwelling in some specific place, although sometimes we do this with religious sites or, or churches. Not this church because it used to be a gym and it lends itself well to darkness, but we tend to sometimes think that God resides uniquely in a place. For the rest of us, we tend to think, we tend to make the mistake that God's presence tends to reside a little bit extra in, in a place in life, don't we? When things are going well, when the relationships are firing on all cylinders, when we have deep community and friendships, when, when church service comes easy and, and there's success stories to share, when, when there's tears of joy instead of tears of pain, we think that was the presence of God. That was the place in life where God met me, but not in Egypt, not in this place in life, not in this place. God's presence is far from me because there's hurt and because there's pain and there's hopelessness. And God says, no, 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 I am with you in that place and I am with you in this place too. My presence will never go away from you. My presence will always be with you. I am with you even in the hurt God says, I will show up even in the hopelessness. God will show up even in the pain, even in the misery, even in the sin. God will show up again and again and again. He will show up in failed relationships. He will show up in the job layoff. He will show up again and again in the job search. And he will show up again in the doctor's report. He will show up again and again and again because our God will never leave us and never forsake us. He is with us to the very end of the age. Amen. Amen. But what comes next goes so far beyond what has happened so far. And I think it is so infinitely grand and infinitely challenging. I think it might just change your life. Let's read the last installment of the story from Genesis 47, starting in verse 8, where it says that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. Pause. If you're catching it, remember, seven is that significant number, and we have Jacob living with Joseph for 17 years until he thought he was dead, and now he's reunited with Joseph for another 17 years. The storyteller is subtly telling us He's completed his life. It's done. It's the end. And I know that also because in verse 29 it says that the time drawn near for Israel to die. Very perceptive, Dirk. And he called for his son Joseph. And he said to him, if I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. That's a sermon for another time. And promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Here's my request. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me 
where they are buried. And Joseph said, I will do as you say, bury me where they are buried. There's two ways of reading this last line in Jacob's life. The first way of reading this is to say that at the very end of his life, I think when it counted the most, Jacob gave up and gave in. He succumbed to the doubt. And he said, I will never see God make good on his promise of Canaan, of that promised land. And so just bring me back there as a dead man because nothing matters anymore. But there's a better reading. A harder reading, but a better reading. The better reading of this is to say that Jacob held on. That the messy faith that Jacob had said, here's the thing, friends. Here's the thing, church. Is that God is faithful even through my own death. The messy kind of faith is one that says, even though my faith isn't ever going to be sight, even though, even though the goodness of God will never be firsthand experienced by me in this life, I will hold on. Because I believe that neither death nor life, that neither angels nor demons, that neither height nor depth nor any power could ever separate me from the love that is in Christ Jesus. He held on. He says, pick up my bones, my body, and carry me to that plot of land. You know, at this time, his family only had rights to, to one parcel in the land of Canaan, in that promised land. It was not a lake house. It was not a farm to grow things. It was a funeral plot, a burial site, purchased for his grandma, Sarah, where Abraham, his grandpa, also laid. And Isaac, his father, was also buried. And Jacob's saying, pick up my bones and bring them there because I'm still holding on to the promises of God even through death. There's this story in Ezekiel chapter 37, one of the most famous, one of the most popular chapters in the Old Testament where God calls his prophet, his guy, Ezekiel, he calls him out to this, this ancient mass grave. And, and he looks and he just sees bones scattered everywhere. And, and God tells Ezekiel, he goes, prophesy to these dead bones, servant. And Ezekiel does, skeptically, I imagine, but he does. And then the bones, they start to stack up and they start to rise up. And, and the Spirit of God starts to, starts to spin starts to spin flesh and blood and sinew and muscle on these bones until a person emerges out of it. And the Spirit of God says, now, now speak the words of life into them. And a people is created. More than that, it says, an army is created. The dead bones lived again. I think that what Jacob was holding on to that day was to say, if my body won't see it, in the resurrection it will. Carry these bones and put them into the site because when my Redeemer lives again and stands on this planet, I will rise again and I want to rise and stand on the land that the Lord my God promised Abraham and promised Isaac and promised me because he will keep his promises, church. Amen? He will keep his promises in this life. In this life or the next, and this is the hard part, because God does not owe us an explanation for how he's going to get us there. 
He promised good for all those who put their hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we don't know how he's going to make good on that good. But he'll bring us there. And we'll hold on to that. And until then, we'll keep telling each other in contexts like this and in circles where there's embracing and where there's tears, we will share the words of that song we love around here so much, those lyrics that go, for every fear, church, there's an empty grave. Neither death nor life, nothing could separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Church, if God could raise an army from the dead, if God could raise a man from the dead, if God could raise his self from the dead, don't you think he could clean up a mess or two? See, here's the, here's the challenge. As you leave, we've been, we've been taking that messy wall in the upper lobby and we've just been writing out our mess and, and putting it on the wall and asking for prayer. Because that's what kind of church we are. We're a kind of church that does life together. And so we've got all kinds of messes up on that wall. And I want you to go out of this place, go to that messy wall, take one of the note cards. You don't know the person, probably, whose card that is, and pray over that mess. Pray that God will clean up the mess. More than that, pray that God will show up in the mess and provide his presence and provide his hope now and for an eternity to come, grab one of those cards. If I'm honest with you, first worship didn't grab too many cards. You can do better, church. Grab a card and bring it home. Don't make me pray hundreds of times for all of these people. I already pray for y'all. I can't handle anymore. Pray for it, for God to show up, because he doesn't walk around the mess. He doesn't avoid the mess. But our God is found in the mess. For you to stand up and let's let's pray to that God who's in our mess today. Jesus, we've made a mess of so many different parts of our lives. We've just a lot of it's our fault. And whether we care to admit it or not, we could probably, if we worked hard enough, trace it back to, to where we went wrong and how we created this thing. But God, you promised us, you said. You said that whether we're at fault or we're just experiencing the shrapnel of somebody else's mess, God, that you're going to clean it up. And someday, maybe not in this life, but in the next, our faith will be sight. And we'll get to see how you create something beautiful out of the mess. God, and on that day, we will stand before your throne and we will sing out, Lord. We will declare in that moment for all eternity your praise and your glory forever and ever. Amen.